Howdy, and welcome to the Six-Gun Justice Podcast, where we celebrate the blazing six-gun action of the Western genre in books, movies, TV, and any other media at home on the range. I'm your host, Paul Bishop. In today's feature, I'll be talking about the history of the Western TV show Gimmick Guns. But before we get there, I've got a couple of book and movie reviews to cover, and a couple of items of housekeeping. Due to other pressing projects that actually produce an income commensurate with effort expanded, my partner and co-host Richard Prosh has reluctantly moved on to other pastures. As for myself, like Rich, I have a stack of other endeavors demanding attention. While I do plan to keep the podcast going with new episodes, the prior twice-a-week schedule will be spreading out to twice a month. Same great features and interviews, but a more sustainable timetable. During the past few years, we have produced almost 200 shows, counting our full-length episodes, speed and installments, and conversation segments. Up to now, we've been numbering episodes, installments, and segments separately. However, they all seem to be about the same length. So at this point, I have made the command decision to combine the numbering system, making this episode 194. With the housekeeping issues out of the way, it's time to let loose the cattle and get this stampede going. With more than 60 novels to his credit, Frank O'Rourke was an accomplished writer of mysteries and sports fiction. Arguably, his best known for his gothic-tinged Western paperback original stories, at which he excelled. His work was adapted for the screen at least twice, The Bravados in 1957, starring Gregory Peck and Joan Collins, and A Mule for the Marquesa, which was filmed as The Professionals in 1966, starring Burt Lancaster, Lee Marvin, and Jack Palance. In the 50s and 60s, Frank O'Rourke turned out at least two westerns a year under his own name and pseudonyms, including Kevin Connor, Frank O'Malley, and Patrick O'Malley. To say that O'Rourke worked in a time of literary transition is an understatement. Two world wars had chopped away the early 20th century's Victorian values, clearing the way for a rush of moral relativism and jaded introspection. The slick magazines had little to do with flowery melodrama and a lot to do with tight, terse prose echoing the anxiety of the day, a style that spilled over into the emerging world of genre paperbacks. What was glamour for the pulps seemed corny and out of touch, and the purple prose of old westerns became downright unsaleable. O'Rourke walked the grub line between literary styles, which is clearly illustrated in his 1955 novel The Big Fifty. Falling somewhere between his 1953 novel Latigo, a wordy land-grab procedural, and 1957's The Bravados, an action-packed manhunt, the Big 50 retains the romantic language of its predecessor while hinting at the complexity of character and action of the latter book. However, whereas The Bravados made a heart-thumping motion picture, The Big 50 would only have made a nifty Poverty Row Saturday matinee. The story takes place in 1878. Already the end of times for the grand buffalo hunts of yesteryear. Old Colonel Delight can see the writing on the wall. Not only have the thundering black herds been whittled down to near extinction, but the market itself has lost most of its honor. Rather than face the near impossible prospect of scraping out a messy, gut-wrenching living from acquiring their own hides, bad men simply steal from the few remaining good guys, sometimes with deadly consequences. Not only does old, always old, Colonel Delight suspect he's been a victim of one of the most notorious thieves of all, he believes Big Jan Schmidt murdered his son. To learn the truth and bring the big villain to justice, old Colonel Delight decides to infiltrate Schmidt's hunting party. 
too sick to do the job himself, and rightly convinced Schmidt would recognize his hired man, Lance McGowan, the withered Confederate Greybeard calls in a Yankee named True Benton. When names like Old Colonel Delight and True Benton are stated in full each time they appear in the narrative, you know you're in for some prose on the lower end of the color spectrum. Naturally, Old Colonel Delight, or OCD, has a lovely daughter named Celia, who Lance wants to wed. As expected, she only has eyes for our hero, True Benton. Left there, the Big 50 might be relegated to the Max brand Zane Grey ripoffs of the 20s and 30s, but O'Rourke's genius pulls it to a higher level. He does this mostly through depth of character, but also by using his working knowledge of hunting and butchering bison. The book takes its name from the 50 caliber rifle slugs the hunters use to harvest their animals, and spends a good amount of time describing the life lived by hide dealers at what was the end of the 1870s, a controversial era. A few pages aren't for the squeamish, but it's clear both True Benton and Jan Schmidt recognize the moral dilemma of their work and lament the passing of the buffalo. These aren't callous men with no regrets. O'Rourke cleverly paints three-dimensional portraits of heroes and villains, both caught in time, both struggling with inner demons, both finding common ground with one another. It's this mutual respect that the author exploits so well. When the inevitable climax occurs, when True Benton's betrayal comes to light, it's a heartbreaking revelation for everybody involved, including the reader. Don't misunderstand. Jan Schmidt deserves what he gets. But like so many of the post-war paperback villains, you're not necessarily happy to see him get it. Satisfied, maybe, but not happy. O'Rourke is always a solid writer, who rarely phones it in. And with the Big 50, he delivers a thought-provoking piece disguised as an old-fashioned odor. And here's a sample of the best purple prose. Her mouth was wide and full and alive. Her hair clubbed up behind her ears, with tiny curls about the temples that shone in the candlelight, with the blackest of black, with ebony tints even deeper than black. She met True Benson's gaze with a sober nod and dignified silence, but remained beside her father in the few moments it took True Benton to see so much and wonder why her kind came but once in a man's lifetime. And then he recalled his situation and his manners. Next up is Catlow from Louis L'Amour which is one of the few polarizing books in L'Amour's canon. Fans either love it or rate it as one of L'Amour's weakest books. Personally, my feelings about the book fall somewhere in the middle. Ben Cowan and Ajip Biwa Katlo have been bound as friends since childhood. By the time they reached manhood, however, they had drifted apart. Ben had taken the path to wearing a tin star, while Catlow followed a more serpentine trail to becoming a top-notch cowhand with a wild streak who followed the spirit of the law, if not the letter. By mutual consent, they avoid each other so as not to force a confrontation. But after a disastrous interaction with a band of greedy ranchers, Catlow is branded an outlaw, and it is U.S. Marshal Ben Cowan's job to bring him in alive, if Catlow will let him. When Catlow escapes to Mexico, determined to pull off a Confederate gold heist and retire, Ben is hot on his trail, but circumstances will force the two men on opposite sides of the law to become allies again, fighting for survival as they are pursued across the harsh Mexican desert by forces who want them both dead. While Catlow is clearly from the early stages of Lamore's writing career, it has a stripped-down charm I found satisfying. I enjoyed the interplay between Catlow and Cowan, friends turned reluctant adversaries, and found myself rooting for both characters to win. 
Lamore was a master at creating this type of reader engagement. And, because Catlow is so stripped down, an attentive reader can get a glimpse of the behind-the-scenes writing mechanics. I found this fascinating. There is some justification to believe Catlow was an unsold pulp story Lamore whipped into shape quickly to keep up with the demands of his publisher's schedule after he, justifiably, took too long expanding the novelization of the movie How the West Was Won. As a side note to clear up an often confused fact, the movie How the West Was Won was based on a series of Life magazine articles from 1959, not an original novel by Lamore. In actuality, James R. Webb's screenplay was brilliantly novelized by Lamore to coincide with the release of the film. Lamore, however, went beyond simply novelizing the screenplay. With his usual attention to details and characters, he expanded the vision of the screenplay into a true novel, which became one of his most renowned. The movie version of Catlow will never be considered a classic western, but it remains an entertaining film. Anchored by the presence of Yul Brenner as Catlow, displaying a surprising sardonic side appropriate to the character, and Richard Crenna as Ben Cowan, the movie is notable for the appearance of Leonard Nimoy as the mercenary Miller, the villain of the piece. Leonard Nimoy mentioned this film in both of his autobiographies as it gave him a chance to break away from his role as Spock on Star Trek. He stated the time during which he made the film was one of the happiest periods of his life, even though his part was rather brief. Like the book, the movie boils down to two characters, on different sides of the law, who remain great friends while unafraid to punch or shoot at each other to gain an advantage. Released in 1971, Catlow has a rawness typical to Westerns of the time period, including experimental filming techniques such as the extremely fast editing of some scenes. One of my favorite Western series are the Buchanan books written under the pseudonym Jonas Ward. The first book in the series, The Names Buchanan, starts with a disillusioned Buchanan, his first name Tom is rarely used, drifting back across the Mexican border into Texas. He's happy to be home, returning after two years of violence working as a hired gun for a man he thought was an idealistic revolutionary, but who turned out to be as corrupt as the brutal forces of the Mexican government they were fighting against. All Buchanan wants is a soft bed and a good steak. What he gets is a border town full of trouble, gun trouble. On the trail to the town of Argy, run by the backstabbing Argy family, Buchanan rescues a young girl who has been raped and left for dead. Restoring the girl to her family, he finds himself swept up into the middle of a violent clash between two powerful dynasties, one on either side of the U.S.-Mexican border. Trying to do the right thing, Buchanan has to rely on his fists and his guns to save the victim's hell-bent-on-revenge brother, who has provoked the wrath of the deadly Argies. The classic Western anti-hero, a man with a troubled past trying to maintain his dented code of ethics by never turning away from an underdog who needs help, Buchanan won't sell his guns for any price, will never shoot a man in the back, and will never cheat or be in debt to anyone. Jonas Ward was originally a pseudonym created for the Buchanan series by best-selling hard-boiled writer William Ard. Ard's approach to the Buchanan series was to reinvent his tough urban crime novels as westerns. The name's Buchanan is essentially a Six Guns and Spurs rewrite of Ard's powerful crime novel, Hell's a City. Ard wrote five Buchanan westerns in the same hard-boiled tinge style. He was working on a sixth when he died of cancer at the age of 37 in 1960. 
Buchanan, however, survived the death of his creator, with other writers commissioned to keep the series going, the Jonas Ward pseudonym becoming a house name for the publisher. The tall, powerful Western loner known as Buchanan was the original Jack Reacher. Art plunks his hero down in the middle of violence and trouble, range wars, town takeovers, land grabs, or any other situation quickly leading to gunplay and a chance for Buchanan to unleash his boulder-sized fists. There is always an abundance of shapely widows, daughters, and dance hall girls to keep Buchanan from getting bored. The mean streets of the city have been replaced by dusty main streets and the private eye by the itinerant gunslinger, but the code of the white knight remains the same. Using the Jonas Ward pseudonym, two distinguished novelists contributed books to the Buchanan series during the early days of their career. Science fiction stalwart Robert Silverberg completed the sixth book in the series, the manuscript Ard was working on when he died. It was called Buchanan on the Prod. Thriller writer Brian Garfield, of Death Wish fame, wrote the seventh book in the series, Buchanan's Gun. Then well-known Western writer William R. Cox took over the series for 16 more Buchanan adventures before the series ended in 1984. In the 1958 movie, Buchanan Rides Alone, which was based on the names Buchanan, Randolph Scott is perfectly cast as a hero, rugged yet laconic. The movie marked the first of a seven-film collaboration between Scott, director Bob Bedecker, producer Harry Joe Brown, and screenwriter Burt Kennedy. This first film is not technically part of what is referred to as the Renown Cycle, as it was produced by a studio. However, it is always included in the series as it was the start of their amazing partnership. To continue with the sampling of the various types of media, if Western genre comics are any type of reliable indicator, the Wild West was overrun with pistol-toting, gunslinging, six-shooting, range-riding, town-taming youngsters, or at least a gaggle of heroes who were tagged with the ubiquitous term kid as part of their moniker. The best known of these juvenile delinquents were the Rawhead Kid, Two-Gun Kid, the Outlaw Kid, Ringo Kid, and Kid Colt, but there was a little red schoolhouse full of others. There were, of course, the generics, Kid Cowboy, Kid Six-Gun, Western Kid, the Gunsmoke Kid, and Billy the Kid, but these were the least colorful of the fast-shooting kids. Many states had their own representatives, the Wyoming Kid, the Arizona Kid, Oklahoma Kid, the Kansas Kid, Dakota Kid, North or South is not specified, Kid Montana, the Colorado Kid, the Texas Kid, and the kid from Texas. I guess Texas was big enough for two kids. Then there are those underage gunslicks who were named after a city because another kid was already representing their state. Yuma Kid, the Dodge City Kid, Cheyenne Kid, the Boise Kid, Fargo Kid, the Durango Kid, the Chisholm Kid, the Pecos Kid, and one named after a river, the Rio Kid. A few teen gunhawks drew on other inspirations for their monikers, like Kid Dynamite, Kid Slade, Apache Kid, Silver Kid, the Cisco Kid, the Copper Kid, Latigo Kid, the Sundance Kid, the Hellbent Kid, and my favorite, the Presto Kid, as in Prestidigitation. The kids were all deadly, as fast with their fists as they were with their guns. They could all shoot accurately while galloping on horseback and split a hangman's rope with bullets fired from their six guns at distances that would make a modern sniper balk. However, most important of all, they never lost their hats under any conditions. I kid you not. <laughs> Moving on to movies, so to speak, I recently rewatched what I considered a classic Western revenge film, 
Nevada Smith, starring Steve McQueen in the role of a young, uneducated half-breed named Max Sand, who would become known as Nevada Smith. While there are definitely some nits to pick with this movie, in my opinion, the overall production has a lot going for it. When Nevada's parents are tortured, robbed, and slaughtered by three men, Carl Malden, Martin Landau, and Arthur Kennedy, the scene is set for a truly classic revenge film. Completely ill-equipped for his quest, Nevada finds a mentor in traveling gunsmith Jonas Cord, played by Brian Keith, who takes pity on him. Thinking him foolish but determined, Cord teaches Nevada the skills of a gunslinger, telling him, Now you get to where you can do that with either hand when you're half drunk or half awake or inside a dark room or off the back of a running horse, you might stand a chance. A small chance. Nevada becomes a dogged man tracker as he learns to read and write, how to follow clues and sign, and how to use fear to make his quarry sweat after the killing starts. My favorite line in the film deals directly with this scene when Jonas Cord explains, It ain't that easy, kid. Finding him's one thing. Killing him's another. Nevada Smith's character is supposed to be 16, which was a stretch for the 36-year-old Steve McQueen. With his blonde hair and blue eyes, he doesn't look half Kiowa either. Brian Keith is solid as the itinerant gunsmith, and Carl Malden is suitably menacing as the main villain. Suzanne Plachette is underused as the young Cajun Pilar, whose limited screen time comes to a nasty end. It is, however, the professionalism of the secondary characters that keeps the film on track. Pat Hingle as a prison trustee, Howard De Silva as a Louisiana prison camp warden, along with Iron Eyes Cody and Strother Martin in uncredited bit parts. The not-yet-WKRP's blonde bombshell, Lonnie Anderson, can be spotted sporting a head full of brunette tresses as a dancehall girl with a line or two of dialogue. Suffering from uninspired directing and an episodic nature, Nevada Smith could be cast aside as a predictable actioneer. However, I found I was able to overlook the film's shortcomings for two reasons. First is the relationship between Nevada and Jonas Cord. It is paternal in nature, giving Nevada back an emotional handhold he lost with the murder of his parents. Despite his inclinations, Cord takes naturally to the role of mentor. Brian Keith's gruff portrayal of Cord has a depth and emotion, showing Cord truly cares what happens to Nevada. This leads to my second reason for rating the film highly. Cord's warnings about the cost of vengeance and the ability to recover from tragedy in other ways can be seen to begin slowly working on Nevada. The life lessons Cord taught do not fall fallow. Instead, they lead to a deep character change within Nevada, which plays out in the film's finale. The multi-layered examination of vengeance and its effect on the human spirit raised Nevada Smith from mundane to memorable. The name Nevada Smith was the inspiration for the name Indiana Jones. The Raiders of the Lost Ark character was originally named Indiana Smith, George Lucas named him Indiana after his dog and Smith after this movie. It was, of course, later changed to Indiana Jones. While completely independent of each other, Nevada Smith, from 1966, can be seen as a prequel to a movie made two years earlier, The Carpetbaggers, from 1964. Based on the sleazy Harold Robbins novel of the same name, The Carpetbaggers starred George Pappard as Jonas Cord and Alan Ladd in his final film role as former Western gunslinger-turned-actor Nevada Smith. I mentioned at the top of the episode that our feature would focus on Western TV show Gimmick Guns. 
But before we get in depth, I wanted to take a quick overview of the TV show Wanted Dead or Alive, which featured one of the most recognizable examples of a gimmick gun. Steve McQueen made his first appearance as sympathetic bounty hunter Josh Randall on an episode of the Western series Trackdown, which starred McQueen's old New York motorcycle racing buddy Robert Culp as a Texas Ranger. Randall's character was popular enough to be spun off into his own series, Wanted Dead or Alive. Randall, of course, was laconic and laid back, often drawling the catchphrase, let's go. A Civil War veteran, he explains his new job as a bounty hunter, saying, if he's got a price on his head, I've got an empty pocket. Randall was assisted in his endeavors by his horse Ringo, and his sawed-off Winchester known as a mare's leg, spelled L-A-I-G, or alternatively a mare's leg, spelled L-E-G. The gimmick gun became virtually the co-star of the show. Randall wore it in a customized leg holster, which made it easy for him to use with one hand. When asked, Randall explains, It's kind of like a hog's leg, but not quite as mean. If I have to use it, I want to get the message across. The King of Cool, Steve McQueen, started to develop his reticent anti-hero persona as Josh Randall in Wanted Dead or Alive. The series gave McQueen a springboard to stardom. His first lead actor appearance on the big screen was in the sci-fi movie The Blob, which was filmed shortly before he landed the lead role on Wanted Dead or Alive. However, The Blob was not released until after the premiere of the Western series, which was so popular it turned McQueen into a household name. As a result, McQueen's new fans flocked to see The Blob, turning the movie into a monster hit, grossing more than $35 million against a budget of $955,000. McQueen was truly on his way. Initially, the creators of the series had a hard time selling the show, since movies and television had always portrayed bounty hunters as disreputable characters of dubious morals. Randall, however, despite being as tough as they come, often used part or all of his reward money to help others. He was also known to stand up for his prisoners if he felt they deserved it. These attributes made the character sympathetic, likable, and more accepted by TV audiences. Randall also helped his popularity grow by not just pursuing wanted outlaws. In his travels, he searched for hidden treasure, mediated family feuds, freed the unjustly accused, located missing husbands, sons, fathers, fiancés, army deserters, a daughter captured by Indians, and even a pet sheep. Despite being a bounty hunter by trade, Randall proved again and again he was more interested in justice and people than in the pursuit of money. When he was offered a role opposite Yule Brenner in The Magnificent Seven, McQueen desperately wanted the part. He ran into a roadblock, however, when the producers of Wanted Dead or Alive would not release him from the series shooting schedule. To get around this obstacle, McQueen staged a car accident. Making out his injuries were much worse than they were, the production of Wanted Dead or Alive was forced to go on hiatus while McQueen recovered. Apparently, Mexico offered a cure for his ills, while coincidentally being the location where The Magnificent Seven was filming. Under cover of his medical leave, McQueen shot the movie before returning to the set of his television show. The mayor's leg McQueen carried was a Winchester model 1892 carbine in a 44 to 40 caliber, but the bullets in McQueen's cartridge belt were 45-70 caliber. This anachronism was used because the 4570s were more visually impressive than the relatively small rounds used in the 1892 carbine. 
Josh Randall's trademark gun also provided a launching pad for the profitable merchandising of toys and other products in support of Wanted Dead or Alive. Toy reproductions of the mare's leg were sold in a variety of packaging, sometimes with a six-shooter and holster added. There was also a board game, comics, and an original tie-in novel. The second most popular item behind the mare's leg gun was the Josh Randall action figure, which surprisingly actually bore a resemblance to the star of the show. In 1986, Wanted Dead or Alive was rebooted as a feature film. The movie starred Rutger Hauer as Nick Randall, a Los Angeles-based bounty hunter and ex-CIA operative who was a descendant of the character Josh Randall, played by Steve McQueen in the 1958 television series. The -the over-the-top action film co-starred Gene Simmons of Kiss fame as a Middle Eastern terrorist. Simmons' casting was a surprise, but he did bring a certain amount of talent to the role. Simmons was born in Haifa, Israel, speaks five languages, and as a member of the band KISS, was an experienced performer. Both James Kahn and Mel Gibson had been considered for the part of Nick Randall. The producer settled on Rutger Hauer, who reduced his usual fee for a leading part, which meant that Kahn or Gibson would have been double the price. Being 1987, critics were lukewarm, partly because they were skeptical of the film's premise an Arab terrorist coming to the United States and attacking soft targets like a movie theater. They also felt the film owed more to Rambo than the original TV series. There were, however, ties to the Steve McQueen original, including a specialized weapon. But since this was a feature film and things had to be bigger and noisier, a trio of weapons. In the film, Nick Randall carries an H&K P7M13 and a cold steel Tanto knife along with a shortened Remington 1870 shotgun. The latter sported a laser sight activated by the trigger and powered by a battery pack in the grip. The holster was custom-made to accommodate both guns. Also similar to the original series, at the end of the film, Nick Randall gives instructions for his payment to be sent to the family of his one-time partner, whose death sparks the film's action. It's time now to dig further into the phenomenon of the TV Western gimmick guns. As we know, from the 1950s through the 1960s, TV Westerns dominated our family room televisions. Every night, there were shootouts, saloon brawls, and owl hoots brought to justice. Certainly, far more pretend bullets were fired across TV's dusty boom towns, interchangeable saloon sets, and sagebrush sound stages than were ever fired for real in the Wild West. During this pinnacle of TV Westerns' popularity, it was difficult some evenings to find shows other than Westerns on any of the three major networks. Westerns have been wholeheartedly embraced by our post-war nation, as if we were yearning for the simplicity of six guns, fists, and fast horses, all leading to the comforting normalcy of white hats clearly triumphing over black hats, something we had lost in the war along with our innocence. Each network labored to make their Westerns stand out from competing shows. TV gunslicks, lawmen, and drifting cowpokes were all fighting for Nielsen's ratings and commercial sponsors. Many TV westerns tried to distinguish their hero by giving him a celebrity horse. Topper for Hopalong Cassidy, Champion for Gene Autry, Diablo along with the Cisco Kid, Target for Annie Oakley, Apache for Lash LaRue, Tornado for Zorro, and others. Sometimes shows have more than one celebrity equine star, as was the case with Roy Rogers, who rode Trigger, and Dale Evans on Buttermilk, or the Lone Ranger, who rode Silver, and Tonto's horse, Scout. The more TV westerns tried to be different, the more they remained alike. 
TV westerns also had a passion for celebrity guns. Like celebrity horses, these gimmick guns were given to TV's western heroes in another attempt to make each show stand out from the competition. Many of the hybrid six guns and rifles used to establish law and order on Hollywood's backlots and sound stages were made by Ed Stenbridge's Gunroom at Paramount Studios. Once created, a show's celebrity firearms were treated with great care. However, the majority of on-screen Western guns were simple blank-firing props and subjected to much rough usage. Quick-draw gun coaches were hired to work with the stars of TV Westerns. These professionals earned a certain notoriety for their skills and were paid handsomely to teach not only the quick-draw and its variations, but also simple gun handling so a star could at least appear somewhat proficient with his fancy weapon. Arvo Ohala, who worked regularly with Hugh O'Brien on the set of The Life and Legend of Wyatt Earp, was among the best of the gun coaches. When The Life and Legend of Wyatt Earp premiered, O'Brien initially wore a double holster rig with two four and three quarter inch Colts. However, in the show's mythology, Earp was gifted with another Colt revolver, this one specially designed with an extended 12 inch barrel. The gun was called a Buntline Special, named after the Dime Magazine writer Ned Buntline a pseudonym for the prolific Edward Z. Judson, who claimed to have convinced Colt to create it, especially for him. The writer was a real-life character, but the tales of his own adventures were as embellished as those of the real-life Western heroes like Earp, whom he immortalized with his purple prose. As cool as it was, the appearance of the Buntline special on The Life and Legend of Wyatt Earp created a number of problems. O'Brien was a fast-draw master in his own right, but dragging out the Buntline Special's extended barrel slowed him down considerably. To assist him in clearing leather with the foot-long barrel, an extended drop was added to O'Brien's right-hand holster. Eventually, Guncoat Ohala perfected a non-period accurate metal-lined holster. His design permitted the Colt to be cocked and the cylinder rotated while the gun was still being drawn. This was a technique unique to Hollywood, but it was so successful that O'Hala's holsters were used regularly in most TV westerns. Western historians disagree regarding the actual existence of the Buntline special, which Buntline claimed to have made and bestowed upon those heroes he thought worthy. However, if the Buntline special never actually existed in the Wild West, the life and legend of Wyatt Earp made the gun so popular, Colt was virtually strong-armed into adding a 12-inch Buntline special to their line in 1957. Colt continued to make the gun for more than 30 years, outlasting the TV series by decades. In The Rifleman, Chuck Connors as Lucas McCain used his famous model 92 Winchester carbine with a large loop and an aluminum barrel for lighter weight. In the hands of the 6-foot, six 6-inch six tall athletic Connors, the 1892 carbine performed spectacularly. Using an adjustable screw threaded into the trigger guard, Connors was able to trip the trigger every time he slammed the lever home. Because of his exceedingly long reach, Connors didn't need any adjustments made to the Winchester's 20-inch barrel, which made him highly proficient at spin-cocking and swing-cocking his rifle. Connors was also ambidextrous, which is why you see him carrying his carbine alternately in his right or left hand at various times during the show. No special photography was used because Connors was as fast as he looked with his Winchester, able to crank off 10 rounds in an eye-blinking 11.2 seconds. He can be seen performing this rapid-fire feat at the beginning of every show. If you count the opening scene shots, however, Connors fires 10 times, but the sound of an extra rifle shot was dubbed in to match the soundtrack. 
As I mentioned earlier, the title of the most famous TV Western gimmick gun should arguably be awarded to the highly altered Winchester carried by Steve McQueen as bounty hunter Josh Randall in Wanted Dead or Alive. McQueen, who knew his way around guns, christened the gun a mare's leg, or as we said, alternately a mare's leg, because when it fired live ammunition, it would kick at both ends. The term mare's leg was first coined in a 1957 episode of the TV Western series Trackdown, where, as mentioned, Steve McQueen made his debut as bunny hunter Josh Randall. To make the mare's leg, a 4440 caliber model 1892 Winchester had its barrel cut back to 9 inches, which had the effect of reducing the magazine capacity to six rounds. To shorten the gun further, the stock was cut back almost even with the customized loop lever to make the gun able to be fired with one hand. In reality, the bizarre gun was an impractical nightmare. Due to the risk of a deafening and dangerous muzzle blast, the gun could only be fired on the set using half-load blanks. The mare's leg also required a custom holster with a spring-loaded clip, that secured the barrel and allowed McQueen to snap the gun free as fast as any owl hoot could draw his six-shooter. With the sawn-off barrel, the mare's leg did not have a gun sight, so Hollywood gun coach Rod Redwing was brought in to teach McQueen the finer aspects of point-shooting the weapon. The lessons worked. McQueen's proficiency with the gun looked cool on screen, but his skill also paid off in real life. During a Pioneer's Day celebration in Palm Springs in 1960, McQueen entered a fast-draw contest against other TV Western stars. McQueen won easily, able to flap his mare leg from his holster and fan off a shot in a respectable two-fifths of a second, outdrawing James Arness of Gunsmoke, John Payne of The Restless Gun, and Peter Brown from Lawman. Another unusual TV Western gimmick gun was carried by actor Don Durant in his role as Johnny Ringo. The gun was a custom-built revolver called a Lamat and was actually based on its historically authentic counterpart, except for its top-brake cartridge-fed design. The 19th-century Lamat was a nine-shot percussion revolver with a 20-gauge smooth-bore barrel underneath the pistol's barrel. A flip of the firing pin on the hammer determined which barrel the gun would fire. Many episodes found Ringo getting into scrapes where that final round of the shotgun barrel was the deciding factor. Then there was Scott Brady as Detective Shotgun Slade, who did not utilize the normal six-shooter as his weapon of choice. Instead, he favored an over-and-under combination shotgun rifle. The lower barrel fired a 12-gauge shotgun shell, while the top barrel fired a 32 caliber rifle bullet, giving Slade both heavy stopping power at close range and at distance when needed. As many of us fondly remember, while he was a master of many weapons, Paladin, played, of course, by Richard Boone, favored his Colt 45 handgun in his black holster with the trademark silver chest knight in the center. While the gun wasn't particularly fancy, it looked huge in the opening sequence, which had Paladin in an action pose as he turned the gun on the audience. Paladin also carried a saddle-holstered Winchester lever-action rifle, with which he was an expert marksman. And always one step ahead, Paladin also added a lethal surprise to his arsenal, a concealed Derringer small-bore handgun. The Rebel's Johnny Yuma, played by Nick Adams, was a man proud of the remnants of his Rebel uniform and was often forced to defend himself against slurs directed at him and the bitter defeat of the South. Using both his fists, a Civil War-style dragoon pistol and a cut-off cavalry-flapped holster, and what Yuma called his scattergun, 
a sawed-off double-barreled shotgun altered at both ends, which he usually wore strapped to his leg, as Steve McQueen did in Wanted Dead or Alive. While the dapper Yancey Derringer, played by Jock Mahoney, carried a four-barreled Sharps Derringer, his Indian companion Pahu carried a short, sawed-off exposed hammer shotgun similar to the gun used by Johnny Yuma in The Rebel. The Restless Guns' Vint Bonner, played by John Payne, used a Colt 45 caliber with a short barrel that could be removed in favor of attaching a longer barrel and a detachable buttstock to increase range and accuracy, although the physics of this are questionable. The Sheriff of Cochise, otherwise known as United States Marshal Frank Morgan, played by John Broomfield, was known for the Winchester mounted in a scabbard on the door of his patrol car. And then, in what would come to be considered the first steampunk-influenced TV western, even though the term wasn't coined until the 1980s, the Wild Wild West had gadgets galore. There were exploding belt buckles, a spring-loaded knife blade in a toe box of a boot, and so many more. There were also a number of gimmick guns, including James West's, played of course by Robert Conrad, hidden sleeve gun, a Derringer designed to be broken down and concealed in a booted heel, and a grappling hook attachment to be shot from a rifle. The Wild Wild West was the ultimate in gadget cool. A number of the original TV Western prop guns have turned up at auction. The real value of these TV Western guns is not monetary, but to be considered for their collector's value, they must have provenance, usually markings with the name of the studio. Some of the TV Western prop guns sold at auction during the past years include some interesting collector's items. With his gold-tipped cane with a hidden sword, Gene Barry, as TV's Bat Masterson, already had a gimmick weapon. However, he also carried a Remington Navy 36 caliber until he switched to a custom 45 caliber Colt single action with a 3.5-inch barrel, which was commissioned for him by the people of Dodge City during his service as sheriff. The original prop gun sold at auction for 6500 in January 2018. James Arness, as Gunsmoke's Marshal Dillon, was a big man carrying a big gun. A Colt Model 1873 45 caliber single-action handgun with a 7.5-inch barrel. The actual TV prop was a real Colt manufactured in 1895 and sold at auction for $50,000 in 2014. Throughout Bonanza's long run, Michael Landon as Little Joe Cartwright carried a Colt single-action 38 Special. The prop originally sold at auction for $12,000 in 2011. Special Agent Jim Hardy, portrayed by Dale Robertson on Tales of Wells Fargo, carried a Colt Frontier single-action revolver. The original prop gun from the show sold at auction for $2,800 in 2011. There's the clanging of the Chuck Wagon Triangle telling me it's time to wrap this episode up with some shootouts and shoutouts. Thanks to Mike Bray and Wolfpack Publishing for being the podcast's premier sponsor. Thanks to Western Writers of America's Roundup Magazine, Saddlebag Dispatches Magazine, and our Six Gun Justice Patreon subscribers for their support. Remember to check out our website at sixgunjustice.com for regularly updated reviews, articles, and interviews from the best of the Western wordslingers. Prior Six Gun Justice podcast episodes are available on all major podcast streaming platforms. Until we meet again, be kind to each other, be kind to yourselves, and may all your trails be happy. Adios for now. I'm out of here.
Let's ride. <laughs>